find your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews 12. And then after you've found that, why don't you stand with me? Let's read it together. Hebrews 12, beginning verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask this morning that you would uh, just quicken your truth to our hearts and minds. Uh, Lord, help us to see this contrast that's given in your word. And Lord, help us to fully understand it and what it means to us, the significance of it. And Lord, we thank you that you have established your new covenant uh, Lord, we are New Covenant believers, and it's because of Christ and His sacrifice on our behalf that we have your eternal salvation. And it's not because of anything that uh, we have done. It's not in, because of anything inherently good in us, but it is all by your grace. And so, Lord, we praise you this morning. We worship you. We exalt the name of Christ Lord, we ask that you would uh, just uh, enable our minds, our hearts to be able to grasp your truth. I pray that there are those in our midst this morning that do not know you as Lord and Savior, that they would come to understand the truth of the gospel, that they would put their faith and trust in you alone for salvation. And Lord, we uh, we pray that you would continue to uh, do your work in our midst that you would continue to grow your church as you see fit. And, Lord, that we would be faithful to you as your people. Help us to be uh, people in this world that uh, uh, people can see the light of Christ in us and they can see that you have done a, a work in us. And so, Lord, that we might be a testimony and a witness to our world that so desperately needs to know your truth. So, Lord, bless again this morning as we worship and help us this morning to uh, apply the truth of your word to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whether we realize it or not, you and I live in a great valley between two enormous mountains. The valley that we live in is between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Perhaps we are right on the edge of Mount Zion, but we are in the valley nonetheless. These two mountains 
and the sharp contrast between them is graphically portrayed in Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. What is painted for us here by the author of Hebrews is one of the most dramatic contrasts in all of God's Word. This contrast is set up by the initial verb in verse 18 compared with the initial verb in verse 22. In verse 18, he says, you have not come. In verse 22, he says, you have come. In other words, you have not come to this mountain, but you have come to this mountain. The emphatic word not in verse 18 finds its balance in the word but of verse 22. There cannot be a sharper contrast in the Greek language than this. The contrast between the two mountains is clearly a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The terrors of Mount Sinai are set over against the joys of Mount Zion. And all throughout this book we have seen the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old. The word better has been used over and over to emphasize the contrast. We have seen that Christ is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He serves in a better priesthood. He has offered a better sacrifice. He has instituted a better covenant through the shedding of his own blood. And that leads to a better life, the life of faith. Furthermore, it leads to a better hope, not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. And all that is wrapped up in the concept of Mount Zion. The basic message of this passage is to let go of Mount Sinai and embrace fully Mount Zion. And of course, the danger for the original hearers of this sermon is that some of them were being tempted to go back into Judaism, to go back to Mount Sinai, and to leave Mount Zion completely. Fear of increasing persecution was tempting some who were associated with the church but had not fully embraced the gospel to apostatize and fall away from the faith. And part of the message from the author of Hebrews is a strong warning that there is something to be feared more than earthly persecution, and that is the judgment of God. Every man is going to be judged according to which mountain he clings to. As John MacArthur puts it, Every man will be judged on one of two bases. He will either be judged by the law or by grace, by his own works or by Christ's work, by the provisions of Sinai or the provisions of Zion. Any man who clings to Mount Sinai will experience the terror of God's judgment. But all who cling to Mount Zion will experience the eternal joys of God's eternal salvation. 
So the message to those who are wavering is that they should fear God's judgment far more than the earthly persecution they were beginning to experience. And they need to look beyond their life in this world to a future glory much greater than any of that. In fact, you can really divide chapter 12 this way. You could divide it into three encouragements. We've seen already the encouragement of the race. We've seen the encouragement of the rod. But now we see the encouragement of the reward. Zion speaks of the eternal reward for those who fully embrace Christ. So let's move into this passage now. And the first mountain we see is the mountain of gloom. The mountain of gloom. Look with me again at verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched. Stop right there for a moment. Of course, that means you have not come to a literal mountain like Mount Sinai. The author of Hebrews does not specifically mention Mount Sinai by name, but there is no question this is what he is referring to. In fact, the word mountain is not in the original text, but it is implied here because it's compared to Mount Zion. And the reason for emphasizing that this is a mountain that could be touched may be connected to the fact that When God gave the law on Mount Sinai, the people were forbidden to even touch the edge of the mountain or they would die. And this highlights the fact that the old covenant was characterized by fear and the inapproachable nature of God. God intentionally created an atmosphere of gloom and terror to teach the people the cost of sin. And significantly, the author of Hebrews employs seven terms to convey this idea. Now, I personally do not believe that is a coincidence at all, because he's going to come back then and give us seven concepts to depict the blessings of the new covenant. So seven for the old covenant and seven for the new covenant. And as I'm sure you know, seven is the perfect divine number in Scripture. And in this case, it likely points to the fact that we are perfectly condemned under the old covenant and we are perfectly saved under the new. And what the people received at Mount Sinai could tell them that they were lost and sinful, but it could not save them. It could regulate their earthly lives, but it could offer no promise of eternal life. It could reflect their spiritual condition, but it could never restore their soul. The covenant of law was a covenant of judgment and fear. The law said, do this and Don't do that or you will be judged. In fact, in some cases, it even said, don't do this or you will die. 
This is where Mount Sinai leads. But the author of Hebrews tells them, this is not the mountain you have come to. The fact that this mountain could be touched means that it was an earthly mountain. Unlike the heavenly Jerusalem, it was only for this world. And as we have already seen in this book, the old covenant was the foundational covenant. It was the kindergarten covenant, which gave the rudiments and the elementary principles of God's nature, will, and standards. And Exodus 19 gives us the account of what took place at Mount Sinai. Not only were the people required to cleanse themselves and abstain from all sexual activity, but they were forbidden to touch the mountain, even the edge of the mountain, or they would die. And God's purpose was to demonstrate His awesome holiness, but also to demonstrate the ugliness of our sin. This was displayed by several elements, seven to be exact. Fire, thunder, smoke, thick clouds, the blasting of the trumpet, the violent shaking of the earth. It left everyone, including Moses himself, the mediator of the Old Covenant, trembling in fear. And the purpose for this display was to make it absolutely clear that God was completely unapproachable. No defiled sinner could ever come into his presence. No sinner could come into uh, where he was or he would die. That was the message. The God of Sinai is truly a God of judgment and wrath. A God to be feared. A God of punishment and condemnation. But here's the message. The writer of Hebrews is telling his audience, listen, if you go back to Judaism, you're going back to that. You're going back to the covenant of law. You're going back to that which can only condemn you. It can never save you. Sinai is the mountain of gloom. It is the mountain of judgment and doom. And since no man can fully obey the law of God, he cannot escape its punishment. The wrath of God against sin is pictured in these seven elements. He says, when you come to Mount Sinai, you come to a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and whirlwind to the blast of a trumpet, to the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. Although the people did not see God, they heard His awesome voice coming from the fire and thick clouds. And they were so terrified by this that they begged Moses to ask God to stop speaking to them like this. It terrified them. Back in chapter 10, verse 31, the author of Hebrews had said, it is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, there is good reason to fear if you are clinging only to Mount Sinai. The covenant of law brings nothing but judgment and wrath and condemnation. Oh, but praise God, there's another mountain. This mountain is not a literal earthly mountain. This is a mountain that is still in the future. We stand between these two mountains, but we can receive the promises of that second mountain right now. It is the mountain of grace. Thankfully, New Covenant believers have not come to Mount Sinai, a mountain of terror and separation from God, but have now come to Mount Zion, the very dwelling place of God. Look with me at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Stop right there. Now, Mount Zion literally refers to Jerusalem. But it is obvious that the author of Hebrews here is not speaking of earthly Zion, but the heavenly one. Originally, Mount Zion was the Jebusite hill that David captured and made his royal residence seven years after he became king. The Ark of the Covenant was then placed in a tent in Zion, and it was later moved to a hill where the temple was built. The name Zion came to be used for the site of the temple and for Jerusalem as a whole. Israel gathered for worship in Zion because the Lord loved it and made it his dwelling place. The prophets often spoke of God's deliverance coming from Zion and Israel being preserved in Zion. The word Zion literally means fortress. This is a place of protection and security. Psalm 125.1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved and abides forever. The concept of Zion became synonymous with the eternal kingdom. Revelation 14.1 speaks of all the redeemed in heaven standing on Mount Zion. So this is all in the mind of the author of Hebrews here. And in this case, Zion is the opposite of Sinai. Whereas Sinai represents the law. Zion represents grace. While Sinai was unapproachable, Zion is available to all who believe. Where Sinai brings judgment and condemnation, Zion brings eternal joy and security. Whereas Sinai was forbidding and terrifying Zion is inviting and gracious. Sinai is closed to all because no one is able to perfectly fulfill God's law. Zion is open to all 
because Jesus Christ has met God's standards for us. And He has graciously granted full and complete atonement for anyone who will put their faith and trust in Him. Zion symbolizes the approachable God. While Sinai was covered with darkness and thick clouds, Zion is the city of light. Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shone forth. This is the city of the light of God Himself. Sinai stands for judgment and death. Zion stands for forgiveness and life. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. That's Psalm 133.3. Now notice the way the author of Hebrews is conveying this is that the believers that he is addressing have already come to Mount Zion. Genuine believers in Christ are already citizens of that eternal heavenly city. And just as he gave seven aspects of Mount Sinai, he also gives us seven aspects of Mount Zion. Guthrie says these images may be understood as creating a picture of the new covenant assembly in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the contrast with the Sinai encounter could not be more pronounced. William Lane comments, every aspect of this vision provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God. The atmosphere at Mount Zion is festive. The frightening visual imagery of blazing fire, darkness, and gloom fades before the reality of the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. The cacophony of whirlwind, trumpet blast, and a sound of words is muted and replaced by the joyful praise of angels in festive gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel, gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain, is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. An overwhelming impression of the unapproachable God is eclipsed by the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Let's walk through these seven aspects of Mount Zion. First, we see the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the heavenly city that was referred to back in chapter 11, verse 16. It is the city that is to come, which will be referred to in chapter 13 and verse 14. It is heaven itself. When we come to Zion, we come by grace to the eternal city that Abraham looked for, a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God himself. 
And those of us who are believers are already citizens of that great city. It is our eternal home. It is where our treasures are. It is where our hope is anchored. And yet, it is still future. Until we arrive there, we cannot fully enjoy our citizenship. For now, we are ambassadors on earth. We are full citizens of that city, but we are not there yet. So in the meantime, we are emissaries for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, the Bible describes the heavenly Jerusalem in much detail. In Revelation 21, we're given its exact specifications. It will be a 1,500-mile cube. Its description really defies human comprehension. And some have wondered if it will be big enough to house all the saints of God. But Ron Phillips puts that concern to rest. He says, if it were divided into 78,000 levels, 100 feet high, each level would contain 2,250,000 square miles. If you allocated 2,000 square feet for every person living there, you would have room for 43 billion people. And of course, that many people have not lived from the beginning of time. So Phillips concludes there's plenty of room in the heavenly Jerusalem. But there's a second aspect that we need to see, and that is myriads of angels, the general assembly. The general assembly refers to the angels, not the church. The word for assembly there is a word that means a gathering for a public festival. The translation of this phrase could be an innumerable company of angels in festal gathering. This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. But in secular literature, it is often used of parties or the celebratory atmosphere at athletic contests such as the Olympics. In the Septuagint, it is often associated with great feasts. In Isaiah 66, it is used to refer to the Messianic kingdom. This atmosphere is the exact opposite of Sinai. There were also myriads of angels present at Mount Sinai, but they were not celebrating there. They were blowing trumpets of judgment. But here on Mount Zion, they are rejoicing and praising God over the eternal salvation of his saints. J. Adams says there is nothing about this picture to fear. There is no need to tremble except in anticipation. Thirdly, we see the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. These are the saints of the church age. The word for church there is ecclesia. This is the body of Christ in the present dispensation. These are new covenant people. 
And the emphasis here is on the inheritance of the New Testament believers. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the firstborn among many brethren. That's Romans chapter 8. Christ is the firstborn, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 6. We are fellow heirs with him. And notice, we are already enrolled in heaven. Our names are already there as registered citizens. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10? He told them not to rejoice in the works that they were able to do, but in the fact that their names are recorded in heaven. That's Luke 10, 20. Revelation 21, 27 refers to the Lamb's book of life. That's where the names of all true believers are recorded. And folks, that is what counts the most for all eternity. You better make sure your name is enrolled in heaven. How do you do that? By putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. By repenting of your sins and believing in Him as your Lord and Savior. Is your name recorded in heaven? But there's a fourth aspect of Mount Zion. When we come to this mountain, we also come to God, the judge of all. The emphasis here really is not on God as the judge of all. Of course he is. But the point here is that coming to Mount Zion means full access into his presence. This is something the Old Testament Jews could not even conceive of. The God of Sinai was completely unapproachable, but the God of Zion is accessible to all who come through grace by faith in Christ. At Jesus' crucifixion, the veil in the temple was torn in two, symbolizing full access into God's presence forever to those who trust His atoning work. So the contrast is clear. To come into God's presence at Sinai was to die, but to come into His presence at Zion is to live. The law brings death, but the gospel brings life. Fifthly, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are the Old Testament saints This uh, phrase refers to those who have already died. Use the use of the word spirits. Their spirits have already been made perfect, it says. And although some commentators have stated that this need not be restricted to Old Testament saints, the fact that they are distinguished from the church of the firstborn points to the fact that they are part of a different dispensation. So these are the Old Testament saints. And we know from the teaching of the New Testament that they are righteous not because of any inherent righteousness in them, but because they have put their faith in the future sacrifice of Christ. 
But what this means is that in the heavenly Jerusalem, we will come into the presence of Abraham and Moses and David and all the other saints of the Old Testament era. And together we will form the greater household of God. But there is a sixth aspect as well. We will also come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Of course, we'll come into the presence of Jesus because he's seated right now at the right hand of the Father. We will see him in the fullness of his glory and beauty, and we will eternally praise him as the mediator of the new covenant. And forever we will be reminded of the fact that the only reason we are in the heavenly city is because of Jesus Christ, our mediator is only because He has become our Savior and our Redeemer that we can enjoy the joys of heaven forever. And even more to the point, we see a final aspect of Mount Zion. We also come to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Again, we see this theme of the sprinkled blood of Christ. We've seen it at several points already. It is, of course, the atoning blood of His redemption. Ephesians 1.7 declares, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ speaks better than the blood of Abel because of what it accomplished. Abel's blood cried out for justice and vengeance, but it had no power to redeem anyone. Guthrie writes, After Abel killed, was killed by Cain, his blood cried out to God for judgment. That's Genesis 4.10. Abel's blood bore witness against Cain, indicating his guilt. But Christ's blood, on the other hand, has won our forgiveness. Therefore, it is crying out that people under the new covenant are no longer guilty, having been cleansed. Completely from sin. Jesus' blood has power to cleanse the sins of all men for all time. And to make peace with God for anyone who applies that blood to his heart by faith. You can rightly say that his blood speaks for us from heaven. So the contrast between the mountains could not be any clearer. But what do we do with all this? What is the application? What do we learn from these two mountains? The message for us today is just as relevant as when it was first written. These two mountains represent the two covenants. There are some similarities between the two. God's presence could be found on both mountains. 
They both have mediators, although the first was trembling Moses, while the second was the great high priest, Jesus Christ. But the primary lesson is not found in the similarities, but in the differences. The terror of Sinai contrasted with the joy of Zion. And this highlights the fact that only in the new covenant can we find joy. Only in the new covenant can we find forgiveness and grace. And the point is, we don't have to live in fear of God. We don't have to dread the terror of His voice. We can embrace the gospel and live with the anticipation of eternal joy. But there's a word in verse 18 and in verse 22 that we overlooked. It is the word come. The call to come has long been a central aspect of the church's message. But we need to think through which mountain we are calling people to come to. George Guthrie has so insightfully written, out of a desire to reflect clearly God's holiness, we can steer dangerously close to Sinai, not just as a necessary way station, but as a permanent spiritual destination, preaching a gospel of terror rather than a gospel of beauty. He asks, do our sermons boom and flash with the darkness of Sinai more than they sing and gather people to the festiveness of Zion? In other words, are we calling people to grace or to law? Guthrie says, it would be a shame if people never hear the music of the heavenly Jerusalem Because the thunder of our Sinai drowns it out. If they never move past trembling Moses to meet Jesus who stands with outstretched arms. That is no doubt a sad reality in many churches. They are so focused on the law of God that you would think they were old covenant churches. They are firmly camped at Mount Sinai in their rigid, legalistic approach to religion. And the truth of the matter is that if our lives and our churches reflect the gloom of Sinai more than the excitement and joy of Zion, we are not exemplifying the new covenant, but the old. Now, having said that, I also need to quickly add that Mount Sinai is also necessary. If we don't go first to Mount Sinai, we will not recognize our sin. That is the purpose for the law. It is to show us that we are sinners and that on our own we can do nothing to deal with our sin. Paul Washer said, The radical depravity of man, the heinous 
nature of his sin must be expounded so as to wound the conscience and lead men to Christ. You have to start in Mount Sinai. You have to go to Mount Sinai first. In fact, if you are familiar with the evangelistic strategy, the way of the gospel, that's where it all starts. Go to the law first to convict men of sin. You gotta, we, we have to recognize our sin first before we can see our need for the Savior. We have to go to Mount Sinai, but we can't stay there. We can't stay there. We have to go on to Mount Zion. We have to go on to the forgiveness and grace of the gospel. As a church, we cannot camp at Mount Sinai. We need to camp at Mount Zion. Yes, we must be faithful to proclaim what God has to say about sin and judgment. But our primary message must be the message of the cross. Our primary message must be that the blood of Christ fully atones for sin. Let me ask you this morning, which mountain are you camped on? Have you discovered the truth of Sinai? Good. But have you gone on to Mount Zion? If not, I plead with you this morning, as the author of Hebrews did centuries ago, don't fall short of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning and help us just to see the, the clear, with clarity this truth that you are giving to us in your word. Lord, there are two mountains. They represent the two covenants. But, Lord, the first covenant was only preparatory. It was only preliminary. It was not intended to be permanent. And, Lord, we know that uh, you have established the new covenant through the blood of Christ. And, Lord, it is that covenant that makes the difference for eternity. So, Lord, help us not to be old covenant people, but help us to be new covenant people. Help us to go beyond the old covenant and the reality of the law and sin and judgment. And help us to go on to the truth, the reality of salvation and grace. And that which is leading to eternal joy. So Lord, we pray you would help us make that, make that clear in our minds this morning. And perhaps there's anyone here today who's never put their faith and trust in Christ for salvation, they would come to Mount Zion and they would embrace Christ fully. And Lord, we pray that all of us as your people would uh, live according to uh, the perspective that you would want us to live by, to represent you well in this world until we reach that heavenly city. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.